Hi, friend, it's Jessica. Welcome back to Guru, please. Today's show is really, really important. We're going to go over what it takes to be emotionally competent, what that means, and why we don't have this skill, even though it's something that can affect your relationships with everyone, including yourself. We're also going to go into some case studies, some examples that you can learn from so that you can use this tool in your own life to validate yourself, validate other people, and generally not be afraid of encountering emotion. Doug also shares his story of why he started doing this work, and it's a pretty interesting story. Please enjoy this show, and also consider leaving a review if you have been enjoying the show and you find it helpful. All right, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Doug Knoll. Doug is a mediator, speaker, and author of Deescalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. He was a commercial trial lawyer for 22 years before transitioning to leadership development, problem solving, and peacemaking. He's the co-founder of Prison of Peace, an organization dedicated to promoting peaceful conflict resolution among prison inmates. Welcome to the show, Doug. Hey, Jessica. It's great to be here. Yeah. So you've had a really interesting journey. You were a lawyer before you kind of now find yourself doing a lot of mediation and peacemaking. What led you to this work? It started really in the mid-80s. I'm going to date myself. Now, I, I uh, passed the bar in 1977, the California State Bar, and began practicing in Central California. And in the mid-80s, uh, completely unrelated to my law practice, I took up the martial arts, mm. which I was really bad at for a long time. <laughs> but eventually, I got pretty good at it. And, and in, by the time I was 40 or 41, I had earned a secondary black belt. But at that time, I was at the height of my trial career. And my teacher called me in one day and said, you're out of here. You can't, I'm not going to teach you anymore. You're too aggressive. You're too arrogant. You're too mm. much of everything. Don't come back until you master Tai Chi. And wow. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's <laughs> really a death sentence because you never master Tai Chi. But I did take up Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. And I studied it as a martial art, not as, a, not as just an exercise that old people do in the park. Uh, you know, mm. I looked at it from the perspective of what is this all about? And Tai Chi, from that perspective, has two paradoxes that really changed my life. The first paradox is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second paradox is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. So soft to be strong and vulnerable to be powerful. Boy, that did not compute. But mm -hmm. I kept working at it. And finally, one day I was uh, trying a case in, and in the middle of the trial, a, a th the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? Hmm. So after that trial, I went on a river trip up to Idaho and ran the main salmon for 10 days with friends. And I was alone in my raft, rowing down through this beautiful river canyon, thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer. And at the end of the trip, I concluded that I'd only served maybe three or four people. I mean, three or four people who really benefited from trial and from litigation process. 
And I thought, well, that's a pretty sad statement for somebody who's been practicing for more than 20 years. And I don't want to go 40 years or 50 years as a trial lawyer and only say I've helped 10 or 15 people. Mm. So I kind of made the decision that maybe there's something else out there. And I had not been thinking about mediation or peacemaking or anything like that. But when I got home, I was driving down out of the mountains and listening to our local public radio station and heard a public service announcement for a new degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is, it's the West Coast Mennonite University. And the Mennonites are, of course, one of the three traditional peace churches of the Protestant sect of Christianity. And that caught my attention. So I jotted down the number and called and found out about the orientation meeting and, and went down. And to make a long story short, I enrolled. And my mentors, they, and these are the people, by the way, who started the International Restorative Justice Movement, started mm -hmm. in Fresno, were just, I mean, it was mind-blowing. Completely changed my view about human conflict. And I saw what the limitations were with the law, and mm -hmm. especially with being a trial lawyer. And so... I completed my master's degree. I had proposed a new business plan to my partners, law partners. They all laughed at me. And I separated from the law firm in 2000 and opened up my own mediation and peacemaking practice. And that's kind of how it started. Wow. And then the prison project started 10 years later in 2010 with my colleague, Laurel Coffer. And we took all of the stuff that we had learned as mediators and professors, we're both professors at Pepperdine University School of Law and adjuncts there and, and had an opportunity to go into the largest, most violent women's prison in the world in Chowchilla, California, and train women how to be peacemakers in their prisons and how to stop the violence. Mm -hmm. And we got that opportunity and that's how Prison of Peace started. And now we're in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 14 or 15 prisons in Greece, a project in Kenya, in Nairobi, and another project starting up in Italy. Mm. Kind of unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like that moment where you realize that you hadn't really helped that many people in, you know, years and years of, of law practice, you kind of used that to propel yourself in a, in a much different direction. That's... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you mentioned that what you learned in the peacemaking, in the courses, was surprising to you, and it was very different from what you had learned in law. Like, what exactly were those things? Well, what I learned was that human conflict is much, much broader than rights, remedies, and defenses, and the, uh, the way the law looks at conflict. The way the law looks at conflict is to, to, is to take a very complex human conflict and distill it, boil it into legal concepts that are abstract and from non-lawyers obtuse, difficult mm -hmm. to understand. And, and that dehumanizes the, the human conflict in many ways. Now, don't get me wrong, the legal system, we have a powerful legal system and it's a good system, mm -hmm. but there are many conflicts today that should not be in the legal system. The legal system is designed to handle certain kinds of disputes very efficiently. But unfortunately, because humans are not good at resolving their own conflicts and we're living in a more and more complex environment, people feel like the only avenue they have for getting conflicts resolved is through the legal system. And so, and so that's more, one of the many reasons why people don't like lawyers. Mm. And what I learned was that human conflict is extremely deep and wide and, and there are many causes of it. 
And then what I really learned was that all human conflict starts in the brain. And that's when I began studying neuroscience. That was in 1998. And I've been a student of neuroscience ever since. Mm -hmm. And findings in neuroscience have completely upended everything that we think we know about human nature. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. The first basic principle that sort of took my head and spun it around was the fact that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Mm -hmm. We live in a culture and a society that privileges rationality over emotions. And the fact of the matter is we are not rational. Uh, we have what are, what's known as bounded rationality, which is a very limited set of rational models that we utilize. But even to use bounded rationality, we have to be emotional first. We're, how can we're not? How would we even know to be rational unless we had an emotional reaction to something that caused us to want to try to engage in high-level executive thinking to try to solve a problem? Mm -hmm. So emotions underlie everything. And once we start real, and of course, all conflict is emotional. Once we start understanding emotions and how they're formed in the brain and understanding the biophysiology of emotions and the neural networks involved and, and then how it's all connected through the polyvagal system to the central nervous system. And all of a sudden, the way that I look at, look at humans completely changes. And, you know, it allows me and my students to hold compassion for people. Whereas if we were using a rational model of human behavior or human nature, we would say these people are irrational and we would be judgmental and critical. Yeah. And once you make this shift, as I said, things change. And then all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, if we're 98% emotional, then I don't have any training in emotions. So then that gets us to learning how to read emotional data fields, how to reflect emotions, how to ethic label, how to become emotionally competent. Right. And that's kind of what the emphasis of my work is today is teaching people really how to become how to become emotionally competent human beings. And I think emotional competency is the skill of the 21st century. So how do we become more emotionally competent? Because as you said, we grow up in a culture where rationality is much more valued, right? you know, and many of us may not have, you know, highly developed emotional awareness compared to maybe more rational Correct. Um, logic. Our parents did, certainly didn't have it and didn't teach us and mm -hmm. educational system, you know, even in California, the, um, there's an emphasis on what's known as socio-emotional learning. But when you look at the curriculum that are, is being ruled out into, you know, our public school systems, it's ridiculous. It's so mm -hmm. it's beyond stupid. Mm -hmm. um, because what they're trying to apply rational processes to something that's not rational, it's emotional. Mm -hmm. So the way we develop emotional competency is to, first of all, learn how to recognize and label the emotions of other people and learn how to acknowledge and, and label our own emotional experiences. And it's not that hard to do because our brains are actually hardwired to read the emotional data fields of other people. And we're hardwired for it, but because we've given rationality so much privilege over the last 3000 years, this part of our brain that we're, has been gifted to us, it just goes unused. Mm -hmm. And so it takes just a little bit of practice and all of a sudden you start seeing emotions for what they are. Mm -hmm. And then if you really wanna, you're gonna really work on your own emotional competency, of course, understanding what emotions are. 
that there's a they are biological, they're cultural, emotions are they're cognitive, they're created. We're not born with emotions. Emotions are created in our brains from about 18 months to five years old. And and there's a thing called affect that we have to understand. And just learning the science behind all of this leads us, leads us into the practices that allow us to be emotionally competent. And by emotionally competent, I mean, we're basic, we're self-aware. We are, we've got impulse control. We can self-regulate our emotions. We can be empathic with other people by listening to, reflecting back and validating their emotional experience without judgment, no matter how angry they are. And we can do the same for ourselves. And we recognize that every behavior that we see is an emotional behavior. It's based on emotion, not based on rationality. And then when we do see rationality, we can, we can, look at the processes that people are using to engaging in rational process and decide how much of their processing is influenced by emotion or not. Mm-hmm. And that gives us a guide to making, to helping other people make good decisions and also evaluating the decisions as to whether or not they're, good, they're necessarily the best outcomes for the people involved. Right. Well, let's talk about an example, like a case study of of somebody kind of de-escalating a situation. Sure. So I love to take stories out of prisons because that's where it's the most dramatic. Hmm. So I t- mentioned earlier that we had done, we started at Valley State Prison for Women, which was in Chowchilla, California. Now it's a men's prison. But in our very first group of women, there was a, a woman who was quite strong and very assertive. And she she got these skills and really, it really, I mean, she really got it. Mm-hmm. And one day there was a riot was forming on the main yard at BSPW. And so the guards were running out and they were getting a lining up around the yard and the women were just getting ready to go at it. And our student saw what was going on, saw the ringleaders, knew who they were because she was a long-termer, grabbed those the, the ringleaders and literally grabbed them by the scruffs of their necks and again, up against the fence and mediated the conflict right there. Got the whole thing over with in 10 minutes. Hmm. The riots dissipated. And, you know, there was not a problem. I mean, it was just amazing. And we get stories like that all the time of how our inmates have, have used the skills that we teach them, these skills around emotional competency, for example, or listening to emotions and the mediation skills that we teach and have just have been able to do amazing things. Another story that I love to tell is about what happens when you start to become emotionally competent. So for two years, I worked in at Corcoran State Prison, which is a level four facility. It's one of the, like Pelican Bay, it's one of the lockdown places, level high level of securities. And I was working with guys coming out of gangs. And so they, they, you know, the first time I met them, they were in shackles and cages, just to give you a sense of what it was about. And these were pretty rough guys. They were all tatted up. They'd all done some pretty bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, st- I started teaching them. And then, so one of the guys came in one day and we would, in one class after about, eh, I don't know, probably this typically the shifts start to happen after about five weeks. And he told this story. He said, I've got a seven-year-old daughter and I talk to her every week for you know, on my 15 minute call, I, I, I talk to her and it's all about me talking to her and I don't get anything out of it. And, and I get to talk to my wife a little bit and that's it. He said, I, so after I started 
after you guys started teaching us how to listen to emotions, I decided to see what would happen if I listened to my daughter's emotions. She's seven years old. Mm -hmm. And he said, all I did was reflect back her emotions to her. Oh, you're really angry. You're really frustrated. You feel really sad. Oh, you're really happy. When he was done with that call, she sounded just giddy happy. And later mm -hmm. he talked to his wife and she said, I don't know what you did on that call, but after that call, she came up to me and said, mommy, I want my own 15 minutes with daddy every single week. Hmm. And so they set that up and she had never come to visit him in prison because she was afraid of him. And he's a pretty rough guy. And here's this guy who's a gangbanger, was a gangbanger, and tears are running down his face as he talks about the emotional connection that he created with his seven-year-old daughter over the telephone. And he realized that he was doing more good for his daughter in his 15-minute calls with her weekly calls, just listening to her into existence, mm. then all their caregivers were giving because he was validating who she was as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's big what you just said, listening. Yeah. Listening others into existence. Right. Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean to you? To me, it means that you are listening to another person's emotions, not their words. You ignore the words. Their mm -hmm. words are not important. Mm -hmm. listening to their emotional experience and reflecting back to them what they're experiencing emotionally because most people because they're not emotionally competent really don't know what they're experiencing so they're having these emotional experiences that are occurring within them mm -hmm. and they're completely unaware of it and when you label those emotions for them and reflect it back mm -hmm. there is a, a a palpable sense of relaxation there are four unconscious reactions that occur really but it's a relaxation response and people feel deeply, deeply heard. They feel deeply validated in ways that they have never experienced before in their lives. Mm. And they, you literally are listening them into existence. For the first time, people are feeling heard. Let's take a look at a case study where somebody goes from listening to the words to listening to the emotions and what the difference is there. Sure. So let's take a... Well, actually, let's do it with you. <laughs> so I'm going to give it, we're going to do this twice. The first time what I want you to do is just tell me a story of something that's happened to you in the last week or so. And I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to kind of do, I'm going to do what's known as active listening, which is, doesn't work <laughs> as you okay. find out. Huh. But, but, but then we're going to go back and you're going to tell me the story again. And I'm going to, I'm going to listen to your emotions and you, then we can discuss what your experience was. So tell me, so just think of something that happened. It's got, a, it doesn't have to be very deep, just a little bit of emotionality to it. And we'll, we'll, I'll show you the two, the differences and everybody who's listening, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to hear the difference. Okay. So the other week I went for a run with one of my friends and I think it was a great run. We you know, had a great conversation about history and, you know, just culture, politics, and I, it was a pretty hard run, but we managed to get through and yeah, I just thought it was a wonderful conversation. Okay. So here's what happens when I pay attention to your words. So mm -hmm. Jessica, you went running with a friend uh, last week and it was a hard run and you talked a lot about a lot of really interesting things and that was your experience. Now, if I listen to your emotions, mm -hmm. this is what I would say. So Jessica, you went for a run last week. It was really exhilarating. You were really happy to be outside. 
pushing your body hard, which felt really good to you. And you were really happy with your friend. You talked about stuff that's really interesting to you and you were completely stimulated by the whole experience. And today you look back on that experience and you have a lot of fondness and happiness as you recall the run. Mm. Yeah, it kind of resonates much more deeply. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me, as you listen, uh, these two ways of listening, what was your experience with the first one listening to the words versus the second one listening to the emotions? Uh, I think with the words, it was almost like you were parroting back what uh -huh. I said literally, but then with the emotional <laughs> listening, it was as if you were interpreting what I said and really understanding, not just at maybe a surface level. I listened you into existence. That's exactly right. Mm. And that's the difference. Mm. That's the difference. Yeah, I think you're right. Not a lot of people do this. And maybe we even tend to invalidate or, or devalue the emotional experience. How, how many times has somebody said to you, don't be a drama queen or get over it mm. or don't be a sissy or don't be a crybaby or, oh, it's all right. It doesn't hurt. Or there's a silver lining in every cloud. Ever Anybody ever say stuff like that to you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's called emotional invalidation. And we tend to emotionally invalidate each other rather than validate each other. Why? Soothing our own anxiety. Because, mm. again, we're not emotionally competent. And when another person, if you, Jessica, become emotional and you're having a moment mm -hmm. and I'm with you, if I'm not emotionally competent, I'm going to get really anxious about your emotions because I don't know what to do. Mm. And so I will try to invalidate you as a way of, this is all unconscious, by the way. I'm going to try to unconsciously invalidate you because you're, if your emotions go away and are not important, then I'm not going to feel anxious. And the sad thing is we do this to our children. Mm. We emotionally invalidate our children all the time. And all, all we're doing is destroying their brains. It's one, it is one of the most pervasive, insidious forms of abuse there is. In fact, there's a study that shows how bad this is. Uh, it's called the ACEs study out of San Diego. And it's been a long longitudinal study looking at the effects of adverse childhood experiences on later medical outcomes in life. Mm -hmm. And emotional abuse is the number one abuse. I mean, emotional abuse runs through all of the nine basic ACEs. Mm. And if you have more than three ACEs in your childhood, you got, you, you're much, much more likely to have a really bad adulthood. Yeah. And, and everybody emotionally invalidates because we don't know any better. It's what our parents did to us. It's what their parents did to them. And it's, it's just this generational cycle. It's what causes crime. I mean, the people that I work with in prison, they're there. For, they, babies are not born as murderers. They're raised to be murderers. And, and the people in prison have lived lives that are so unbelievably abusive. It's no mm. wonder they're in prison. Yeah. No wonder they're in prison. One guy, one guy was teaching, again, at Corcoran. So I said, well, what was, the emotional, what was the emotional culture of your home? And one guy said, there was only one emotion in our home. It was anger, anger and violence. That's all I knew from the time I can even remember people yelling and screaming and in rage and hitting, hitting anybody nearby, including me. I got beat up a lot. Hmm. And I learned anger and rage. That's where I learned it. Other people would say there was no emotion in my home, completely shut down. No, no, no love, no, no nothing. Hmm. And so I learned to be 
I learned that's how I became psychopathic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> these are extreme cases, but they illustrate the point that we emotionally invalidate our children, and as we do so, we abuse them. How do we turn that around? Start learning how to validate children. Validate emotions. Do what I just did to you. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. And you can take a two-year-old. You can take a two-year-old who's having a temper tantrum, even in the supermarket, you know, mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be there, and the kid is just completely at his or her wit's end. And you can affect label. You can label that child's emotions and calm them down in about 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. And I have parents who I train. I have a parents program that I teach online, online parents program. And parents report that when they start applying these principles to their children, even their toddlers, the tantrums go away in about three or four months. Mm. And, and parents who are working with older kids, you know, say between the ages of eight and, and into teenage, the kids completely change. They completely change. Instead of being on their phones or on their games or doing their thing, they come to the parents and want to interact with them. Yeah. Because it feels good to them. They're emotionally safe. Yeah. And that's another thing that's pretty critical when you start learning about emotions is that we do not create emotional safety for each other or for our children, mm-hmm. which is why people go get withdrawn. They put up emotional barriers. You've probably heard the term guys that are emotionally unavailable, girls that are emotionally unavailable. Mm-hmm. It's because they've never been they've never been exper- they've never experienced emotional safety. So of course you're going to put yourself behind a fortress if it's not safe to be emotional. Right, right. Well, what you mentioned before about people invalidating others' emotions due to a feeling of anxiety. I mean, what if, you know, it is anxiety provoking to see somebody have an emotional outburst, whether that's sadness or anger? It is until you're emotionally competent and then it doesn't bother you anymore. You're just saying, oh, you're having an emotional moment. No big deal. But if you're unschooled, if you're untrained, if you're emotionally incompetent, then you're absolutely right. You're going to get anxious because you don't know any other way to be. And you got to, this is training. This is not something that just happens. You have to learn the skills and practice the skills, just like learning how to read or write. Emotional literacy is the same as STEM literacy. It's exactly the same stuff. You're just using different parts of the brain that don't get developed because our school system is based on this misguided idea around rationality. Mm. And that's because educational professors are all about rationality. And they, com- they have completely missed the boat that we're, we're not rational, we're emotional. Mm. So you have to learn these skills. You got to learn them and practice them just like anything else. But once you do it, everything changes. How do we learn to validate our own emotions? It's the same process as validating somebody else's emotions, except that you would you say to yourself what your emotional experience is. So, for example, you're out on that run last week. Mm-hmm. If you were validating yourself, you said, "Man, I, I'm really happy right now. I just find this. I'm just exhilarated by this one, and I'm just having so much fun in this conversation. Mm-hmm. This is just really special to me, and I feel a lot of gratitude." And I'm grateful that I get to have this experience and I'm really happy. Mm. You say this all to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. So those are positives because you had a positive experience, but you could do a negative experience too because I'm really sad right now. I feel really depressed. I feel unloved. I feel rejected. Mm-hmm. I feel humiliated. I feel shame. All you have to do is just name whatever it is you're experiencing. 
And over a period of time, you will develop much more clarity around your emotional experience and you will slowly develop emotional competency. How is it that simply naming our emotional experience can help us? The science behind this is a little complex, but essentially what's happening is that when you... Oh, I can't, I'm <laughs> I can move into my graduate professor role here. I want to, there's science behind it. So I'll, I'll just basically, I'll keep it, I'll try to keep it really simple. Mm-hmm. We are born with affect. So babies are born with what's known as affect. This is experience that's either pleasant or unpleasant. Then as we start to verbalize 18 months, somewhere in that, in that range, the emotional centers of the brain are now maturing. They aren't mature when we're, when we're born. And we start creating these things called emotions, which are cognitive constructs that describe various affective states, feeling good or feeling bad. That's what affect is. Mm -hmm. So we have to build up, to be healthy, we have to build up a database of emotions that we can, words that we can draw on to describe our affective state. Well, that process of emotional categorization is derailed by emotional invalidation. So that what happens is when somebody becomes emotional, let's just say an adult becomes emotional, And if it's a strong emotion, what happens is the emotional centers of the brain basically override the prefrontal cortex. And you've seen this, we've all seen this many times, both in simulation like movies and TV where actors are getting really angry. And we see see it in real life too, where people are really emotional. Mm. Well, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. And that's where all the emotional categorization and emotional regulation and impulse control occurs. But the limbic system structures, of which there are a dozen or so, parts of the brain are dominating the neural networks of the brain such that, for lack of a better term, the prefrontal cortex can't get a word in edgewise. It's basically Mm -hmm. shut down. Mm -hmm. When we affect label somebody, we are literally lending our prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. to the speaker. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm labeling your emotions, I'm basically lending my prefrontal cortex to you for the time it takes for you, your prefrontal cortex to get online and start grabbing a hold of the emotional experience and and working with it. And what the science shows, uh, these are brain scanning studies done by Matthew Lieberman down at UCLA. What, What his studies show is that when you affect label somebody who's emotional, the prefrontal cortex activates and at the same time, the emotional centers of the brain, primarily the amygdala and then the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of a kissing cousin to the limbic system, deactivates. It's inhibited. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing when we're affect labeling is literally lending the speaker our prefrontal cortex. And when that happens, what the brain scanning studies show is that the brain reverts to calm almost immediately. I mean, within seconds. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're able to deescalate somebody in 30 or 45 seconds because it's how our brains are hardwired. And it's Mm -hmm. Mm cross-cultural. I mean, a human brain is a human brain. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's a really simple process, actually. It is simple to describe, but it's not always so easy to learn. And that's why you need coaching and teaching, because we have been so biased against emotions that the idea of using a you statement, you notice there's no I statements in this stuff. The idea of using a you statement and telling people what their emotions are for many people is intimidating. Because they feel like they're being rude, they're being pa- they're being patronizing. I mean, it's violating a lot of norms that, mm. of behavior that they think are appropriate. They're not, but these are norms that we grew up with. 
And so we have to overcome those norms. Mm. And so it takes a little bit of courage to do this work in the beginning. But here's the thing. Once you start this practice, you get immediate positive feedback from the people you're listening to because they are so grateful that you have deeply heard and understood them. Just like when I listened to you a little bit ago, mm. you know, you felt that profound sense of gratitude and an awareness that, wow, I've just really been deeply listened to. Right. What if the person who's doing the affect labeling gets the emotion wrong? Uh, great question. It doesn't matter. Because what happens is the, the, the speaker is so happy that you are, that they're being listened to, that they'll correct. Mm. They'll correct you. And you just come back with a correction. Now, here's the thing. Here's the other thing is that most of the time, your, our brains are so good at reading emotional data fields. We're almost never wrong. So the conversation could go like this. Somebody's talking, I can't believe what a son of a gun that person was, you know, really angry. And you say, oh, so you're really angry. No, I'm not angry. Oh, you're not angry. You're, you're, oh, you're frustrated. Yeah, I'm really frustrated. Mm. And you don't feel like you're being listened to and you, the affect label the deeper emotions. And then, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you come back and you're really pissed off. You're really angry. Yeah, I'm really angry. Mm. So, so notice that the obvious emotion was anger. I labeled it. The person denied that it was anger. Mm-hmm said I was wrong. I wasn't wrong. They just were so angry they couldn't process it or they weren't aware that they were angry. And so they couldn't label it, which is why they were emotional in the first place. So once I labeled it, they said, no, I'm frustrated. I come, oh, you're really frustrated. Then of course, they're always, anger always hides four or five other emotions. So you go into all mm-hmm. of those emotions and cycle back to anger again. So you're really pissed off. Yeah, I'm really pissed off. And that'll get it. So never worry about whether you're right or wrong. It's not about, you're not getting scored on a test in school. Mm -hmm. The the, the measure here is, does the speaker feel heard? And are you reflecting back the speaker's emotional experience from the speaker's frame of reference? Interesting. And if you're just doing that, magic happens. I'm thinking, what if you have a case where somebody really cannot label their own emotions or recognize them. And maybe they'll say something like, oh, I don't feel anything at all uh-huh. or, or something like I feel numb. There you go. Now, the first thing that happens, that's common. And the first thing to observe is this person has never felt emotionally safe. Mm. And, and now you're creating emotional safety by listening to their emotions. And the first reaction you're going to get is uh, it's going to be a fear reaction with a repulsion or maybe anger or pushback. Mm. Sometimes if, if somebody says, I'm, I, I don't feel anything, I, I feel numb, you can still read their emotions. They just are not in touch with their own emotional experience. So now you really got to lend them your prefrontal cortex. Say, oh, so you're really sad. Nobody listens to you. You feel completely unsupported. You feel unloved and completely abandoned. Mm-hmm. And you feel a little shame and humiliation. And you feel like you've been treated unfairly. And it kind of makes you angry. Yeah. Some person, all of a sudden, you're penetrating through that wall, and they're hearing themselves, hearing somebody else validate their experience for the first time. They're not numb. They just have put up this barrier so that they don't have to feel the pain of emotion. And once you start validating the emotion, the pain goes away. Yeah. It sounds like it takes learning like these, this, the language of emotion. It takes that, but I'm, I boil it down into a very, very simple process, mm-hmm. which is you, there are layers and you just need to know, know the nine words, 12 words gives you everything that you need to know 
to label any human being's emotions. What are they? Anger. Mm-hmm. I'll just go, kind of go through the layers. So the first layer is the anger layer. So that would be anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. The next layer are what I call dignitary emotions. Not sure they're really emotions, but they're experiences that are close enough. So that would be being treated unfairly, not being heard, not being supported, unappreciated, mm. stuff like that. They tend to, tend to be relational feelings. Then underneath that are the fear emotions, fear and anxiety. And then underneath that is shame, humiliation, embarrassment, and guilt. Mm. Underneath that is sadness and grief. And underneath that is unloved and abandoned and rejected. Not many words, huh? Right. (laughs) That's all you need. Oh, that's all. Okay. That's it. And then you start, once you understand these layers, you start, you start with whatever is presenting. Mm. Now you you got positive emotions too, of course. And you can always affect label positive emotions. And kids especially love being having their happy emotions reflected back to them. Mm. But w- the way you start this is you start with where they're at. Most people start with anger. That you're angry. So so you say uh, you're angry. And and then you you sort of dive down. Anger is always covers up being unloved, abandoned and rejected. That's where anger comes from. Mm. But you work so you work into it. You're really angry. Nobody's supporting you. You feel unappreciated. Yeah. You know, you feel like you've been treated really unfairly. Yeah. And you feel you're a little anxious and scared because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And now they're starting to calm down and you feel you're feeling a little embarrassed about all of this. Yeah, I am. Mm. And then you can go a little lower and say you feel really sad. And you're feeling some grief around what's going on. Yeah, I do. Because you feel completely unloved and abandoned. Mm. Yeah. So I just work through the layers. Mm. That's super powerful. <laughs> it's unbelievably powerful. Yeah. And you can do this with anyone. anybody. Yeah. Anyone. Yeah. So the way that you, you go about learning this stuff, one, I've, got, I've written a book on this called Deescalate. Mm. And just if people are interested, they can go to Dougnoll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com forward slash deescalate the book, put hyphens or dashes in there, D hyphen escalate hyphen the hyphen book you can get it on amazon too but if you go to if you buy it off of my website you can also get training online training mm-hmm. at all different levels and what i have found is that if you do the online training and do the coaching you can usually master these skills in about six weeks wow it takes about six weeks of practice one hour with spending an hour a week with me in a coaching session group coaching Mm-hmm. So like I, I have this afternoon, I've got a, co- I've got a coaching session at four o'clock. So people from all over the United States, my Thursday night group is people from all over the world. I mean, that's really not even that long, six weeks. No, six weeks. You can, most people can, some take longer, mm-hmm. but most people, six weeks, usually they can get it in six weeks. But you got to have a. You've got to be supported in it because it is scary in the beginning, and you got to understand. You got to do the online course, the online video course, because we. You got to understand the science. Why is it that this works the way that it does? Right. And once you understand the science, and you realize that all the pop psychology of nonviolent communication and active listening and all that crap, which was all generated in the '60s and '70s and '80s, is all wrong. Hmm. Just wrong, because there's no science behind it. And, and once you recognize the science and you see what does work and why it works and what's going on in the brain, then it becomes easier to understand. And then it's just, a, you know, 
doing the practice. And the way I tell people to practice, they said to go start with really low risk situations. So you go into a Starbucks and well, we probably don't do that much anymore in COVID, but, but you know, it still might maybe you go through a drive through and mm. you look at whoever's taking your money and say, you look really, you're really happy today. Mm. Just reflect back whatever you see to a perfect stranger taking your money, taking your credit card and watch what happens. Yeah. And just do that three or four times a week to perfect strangers, people at Whole Foods or Sprouts or wherever you go shopping, you know, and take to, to talk to the clerk. Just read their emotions and reflect it back. You're really stressed out. You're anxious. You're tired. It's all you have to say. Just one, a couple of throwaway lines and watch what happens. Mm-hmm. Watch what happens when you listen to somebody into existence. And you practice that. And that builds confidence. You know, oh, no, it isn't crazy. This stuff really does work. It's kind of amazing. And then you can, as you get confidence, you can start introducing it into your relationships. So if you've got children, you just start affect labeling your children, label their emotions as you see them, and then start introducing it in your workplace. You see people that are upset or happy or whatever, just start labeling their emotions, ignore their words, and just do it very one-off, very, very nuanced, very subtle, and just, and just start observing Every, all these humans are your lab rats out there, and you're going to just experiment <laughs> with them. And, and, then you, and then finally, when you feel like you got it, then you can start kind of working, in, working it into any intimate relationships you might have. I don't start there, though. Don't start with a partner or a mm-hmm. wife or a, a husband. Or, don't do, that's the wrong place to start. That's the last place you go. High you, go you go there when you have developed some basic competency. Gotcha. What if you're the kind of person who responds to anger with fear or more anger yes how do you stay calm so the the way you stay calm is to ignore the words let the words just become white noise huh okay completely and again this is counter-normative right we're used to paying attention to the words that's what we're taught you're going to ignore you're not ignoring the person you're just ignoring the angry words Hmm. and then listen for the emotions when somebody's really angry and getting in your face, they're going to be angry. There's going to be a lot of other stuff going on too underneath that anger. And so all you do is reflect back their anger and their other emotions with a simple use statement. You are angry. You are frustrated. You're unappreciated. You don't feel heard. You just work through the list, work through the layers. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is that as you do this, it will be like a bubble is around you. And there's nothing that angry person can say to you that's going to upset you. Mm. You're, you're totally protected because you're not getting triggered and you're responding in the only, dare I say it, the only rational way possible. You're listening mm. to their emotions. Anything else is an emotional reactive response that's just going to make things worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of blending rationality into... I mean, you, you're going to make a choice. You, the choice is... Do I want to calm this person down or do I want to walk away? Those are your two choices. I'm not going to sit here and take this abuse. And I don't care whether this person signs my paycheck or not. They don't have the right to yell at me. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't yell back without making things worse. But I can listen to them and reflect back their emotions and de-escalate and then find out what's going on. Or I can walk away. Say, no, I'm not going to listen to this. And you can say, I'll talk to you when you calm down. I see. But don't sit there and tolerate it. What if they want something from you? When they're calm and collected and you can have a 
conversation about that, then you can you can talk to him about that. But never apologize, never rationalize, never justify, never explain, never appease. All these things that we do to try to calm people down, all big mm. mistakes. N don't do any of that stuff. You got two choices. You can affect label them, you know, de-escalate them or walk away and have it come back at a conversation at another time. Those are your only two choices. Anything else is just going to make things worse. Yeah. So our normal way that we would calm somebody down doesn't work. You're saying it never works. Yeah. And we know it. We <laughs> all know it. Which is one of the reasons why we get anxious around angry people in the first place is because we know we don't have any tools that work. Mm, right. And the stuff we try to do that we think backfires. Might work, it makes it worse. It backfires. Absolutely. This is something that, yeah, we all need this. this skill. Every human being needs to learn this skill. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Especially for ourselves, I think. I think if we start there with validating our own emotional experiences, then it, it is just so much easier to do it for others. It is. Yeah. yeah. It is. Wow. This is a great conversation. Like, thank you for sharing your story. And I thought it was very funny that it started off with actually your martial arts experience and kind of being told that you were too aggressive. I mean, what what's your thought about that now? Well, I w probably was. I was probably an arrogant asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I probably was. In fact, I was. I'll freely admit it, I was. But I was emotionally incompetent. Mm -hmm. And I was emotionally withdrawn mm -hmm. and had a lot of deep insecurity from childhood. I, was, I had a really rough childhood. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of insecurity and a lot of problems that, that came from that. I, I mean, I was born deaf and nearly blind and crippled. And I mean, I got in the wrong line of everything. Mm -hmm. But I was given a, a keen intellect. And you can just imagine being a kid who can't, who can barely walk, has glasses thick, you know, three inches thick. Mm. You know, it was a buzzkill for the girls, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my childhood and teen years were awful, mm. and and I, I was pretty seriously hampered socially, and it took me a long, long time to get over that. Mm. It wasn't until, you know, I got out of the practice of law and and discovered these skills. I just discovered them by happenstance. And then the science came along a couple of years later behind me to show why this all worked, that it really started, I really started to shift and change. Mm. So wow. It's yeah. all just, it's a growth experience is all it is. Yeah. It's really deeply affected how you live and what you do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my life today is all about service to humanity. Yeah. It's a really yeah. cool place to be. Yeah. And I can only imagine what it felt like to, you know, feel like you didn't really have a great impact from all your years of yeah. law practice, which is not easy, you know. No, I made a lot of money, but who cares? Money, money, <laughs> money, money is BS, you know. I mean, I know when you're young, I'm a lot older now, but when you're young, you know, money is everything. You want to be successful and drive a big car. I did all that. I had a big car. I had a big house. I, you know, lived, lived a, not quite the lifestyle of rich and famous, but it was pretty affluent. Mm -hmm. Today it means nothing to me. Mm. Yeah, it's hard, and it, that's that comes with experience and wisdom, I think, and also emotional competency. Because once you're once you're happy inside yourself, your mm -hmm. material things just don't become that important. What is important now for you? Being with my wife, who, whom is the most amazing person in the world. I can't believe how lucky I am to be married to this woman, and what an incredible life we have together. So that's mm -hmm. first. Being able to 
teach people mm-hmm. the things that we've been talking about today is important. is really important to me because, as you've noted, everybody needs to learn these skills. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the prison work has got me to a place where if I can stop one kid from going to prison because I teach one parent how to listen that kid into existence and diverts that kid from being emotionally dysfunctional to be emotionally competent, then that's a life well lived, in my opinion. Yeah. So I'm just motivated to teach this because it is so foundational to everything that we are. And all this political polarization that we're going through, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it changes not going to go away, but it changes once you understand it as an emotional experience. Beliefs are nothing more than emotions. Mm-hmm. And once you begin to understand what's going on, you the way you approach other people and the way you interact with them completely changes. It's yeah. completely different. Right, right. Wow. Thank you so much because this is such a vital and learnable, like teachable, totally. learnable thing. Yeah. Totally, totally learnable. A little bit of effort. Right. So if people want to find out more, um, they can go to my website, dougnoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. Got lots of information there, blogs, YouTube. I got a YouTube channel. You know, Search me out on YouTube. I've probably got 30 videos that talk about this stuff, at least 30, maybe even more than that. Yeah. And if you want to get, get my last book, the fourth book, Deescalate, yeah, it's on Amazon. It's on all the usual places. It's a Simon & Schuster book, so it's pretty well distributes the Amazon bestseller. It's in four languages and second printing 200 five-star reviews. I mean, it's books done really well. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey friend, I hope you enjoyed this show and found it helpful in your own life. I want to ask you a favor. I would love it if you could leave an Apple podcast review for the show. You can do that on your podcast app. It would mean so much to me and I would love to hear what you think about the show. I make the show for you to help you on your journey and I love sharing these great conversations with you. Thanks so much for listening.